Well? There it goes again. Every hour, on the hour, coughing and puffing. Look, Doctor, I know science comes first. But that thing is ridiculous. For six hours straight. Every hour on the hour. Good afternoon, you're listening to 90.7 FM, KLX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. And I'm Brian Gerke. Coming up on this week's show, we'll be looking at current events in the world of science and technology. Also joining us is Professor Jennifer Elisiev, who will tell us a little bit about material engineering of tissues. In addition, Professor Carlos Peños will join us to discuss the recent Columbia incident. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grocks. Berkeley Rocks, only here on 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Charles Lee. I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Frank Ling. Well, I guess uh, many of you out there might uh, have heard the sirens that were going off in the uh, atmosphere out at the UC Berkeley campus. Uh, not to worry, this is only a test. So at noon today, you should have heard the sirens on the UC Berkeley campus. This was just a test. It is only a test of the university's alerting and warning system. In a real emergency, you're urged to shelter, shut, and listen. To shelter, go inside a building. To shut, shut all doors and windows. To listen, call the Campus Emergency Information Hotline, 800-705-9998. Or go to the Campus Emergency website at emergency.berkeley.edu. Or tune into this station, KALX 90.7 FM. Do not call 911 if you hear a safety siren. Only call 911 if you have a life-threatening emergency. The sirens you heard today were only a test. And the sirens will be tested the first Wednesday of every month at noon. Noon right here when uh, Berkeley Rocks is on, so lucky us. Sound the alarms. I guess hopefully people will be tuning in then to to listen to the program. Yeah. All the great science stuff. Well, we are an emergency program, right? Uh, Among other things. So uh, no emergency out there today, but stay tuned. More science is on the way. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. How's everybody doing? I'm doing well. Uh, pretty good. Can you guys feel like you're getting older? Uh, every now and then, uh, I guess uh, one second at a time. Yeah, because you are. You know, you step by are. step, I guess. And of course, getting older causes certain things to shrink, as we are all painfully aware. What things, things like, would those be? Things like things like telomeres. Oh, telomeres. Oh, yes, okay. Telomeres. Uh, apparently. Is it like television? No, no, it's not. Telomeres are the very ends of your chromosomes. They're long mm-hmm. strands of DNA. That's just the same sequence of letters repeated over and over again. And they basically are a buffer on the end of your chromosomes to to allow them to keep replicating 
working properly, you know, so you don't right. lose any information. Mm-hmm. But uh, as you get older, your telomeres start to shrink in your chromosomes, mm-hmm. and this can cause your cells to replicate less efficiently. And those with uh, shrunken telomeres are eight times as likely to die with, from an infectious disease and three times as likely to suffer a fatal heart attack, according to a study that was recently done at the University of Utah, which suggests that it's these shrinking telomeres that have something to do with, with people dying of, of, say, old age. Sort of like a, uh, a little molecular-level clock in the DNA. Yeah. Molecular like clock, huh? Stops, say, for example, it stops uh, white blood cells from replicating as quickly, mm-hmm. so they're not as able to fight off disease. However, uh, other people would claim that there's a certain trade-off there because the shrinking telomeres also would stop runaway replication, otherwise known otherwise so as cancer. So cancer cells do not have so, telomeres. Uh, there, may be a, there may be a trade-off between aging and getting cancer mm-hmm. here, but it's not entirely clear. But it's now been shown, at least, that there's a correlation between shrunken telomeres and uh, signs of aging that lead to death. So do they think these shrunken telomeres are causing that? or It's, that it's hard to say. It's very yeah. hard to say. Mm. It's early days. Um, right. It's certainly true that in other species, aging happens before the telomeres start to shrink. Mm-hmm. So it right, for the oxidation, perhaps. Yeah, it may be the other, the other way around. Sure. But in any case, if people want to know more about this particular study, they can look in The Lancet, volume 361, page 393. All right, so going from uh, things shrinking to things rising in our rising, sexual, eh? rising? sexual innuendo here. I don't see your point. Like bread or what? Well, like the levels of the oceans. Ah, so uh, it's, it's been well known that waters will rise and fall due to uh, glacial periods, the ice ages. Mm-hmm. And as the waters melt, you know, the rise and fall of the oceans follow this. Uh, there's a number of theories that are trying to explain how um, glaciation and deglaciation occur and how the Earth moves outside of an ice age. And so there's one uh, particular episode that occurred during the last uh, deglaciation, the last end of the ice age, about 15,000 years ago, which was characterized by what's called a meltwater pulse, 1A. And this is somewhat correlated related with something that's called the bowling warming, which was an increase in the northern hemisphere air temperature. So there's been a big question out right now in geology is hmm. whether the rise in water correlated with the rise in air temperature, which you might expect. But recent evidence is at least suggesting that the two are, in fact, related in time. So a group of researchers led by Kinesat and others uh, went to South China Sea. Mm-hmm. They took a core sample, compared the amount of plant matter during the time, and also did some measurements on the uh, air temperature. And they were able to show that in the two uh, periods, the rise in the air temperature correlates very strongly with the rise in the water. So it's a strong indication that the two are related in time and perhaps the one caused the other. Cool. And if anyone wants to know more about this? Well, if anyone wants to know more about this, they can wait till the next uh, ice age and observe it for themselves. Or they can do even better. They can go to the uh, recent issue of Geology. This is volume 31, page 67. So, do you know what causes that itchy feeling? The itchy feeling? Yeah, Which the itchy, itchy feeling. feeling is that? Oh, you know, the one that makes you want to scratch somewhere? Oh, I see. You mean the itchy feeling? Yes, the mm. itchy feeling. I, what causes the itchy feeling besides various fungal growths? Well, apparently there's a chemical called histamine that um, causes oh. itchiness. Primarily, it's to cause um, more blood flow to wherever, you know, you have some problems. But it's also the same compound that keeps you awake. Oh, I see. It turns out this is a mechanism that this new drug, modafinil, which the FDA is in the process of approving for anti-sleepiness. 
And unlike amphetamines, which uh, a lot of people use for sleeping, motophil causes the activity of histamines to increase. I, I see. So how does it cause the uh, activity of the histamines to increase? So sleep researchers are still trying to figure out what the mechanism is, but somehow they activate the orexin neurons in your brains, and they also inhibit the tra- neurotransmitter gamma-alpha-aminobutyric acid, GABA. Um, so that's that's kind of interesting. So it's, it's I imagine, correlated with the fact that a lot of antihistamines make you drowsy when you yeah, take that. Yeah, but oh. this is good news for uh, a lot of people out there, whether they have sleeping problems or can't sleep at all. So the idea is this is for people who are narcoleptics, who uh-huh. uh, sleep all the time, and they're thinking that this could be a good way for them to uh, stay awake during the day. And also people who are insomniacs, so if they stay awake during the day, they'll sleep better at night. Oh, right? I see. So just make them itch all day and then they'll to sleep. <laughs> Indeed. And the military is also interested because uh, they want... The military is interested in everything. <laughs> yeah. They want troops to stay awake for like three days in a row without... So they're going to make them itch? <laughs> I guess the so. sadistic military. What's up with them? They're yeah. awake and angry because yeah. they itch. <laughs> and if anyone's itching to know more about this, they can look at the current issue of chemical and engineering news. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Professor Jennifer Elisiev from Johns Hopkins University will join us to discuss the biomedical engineering of tissue. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, the idea of replacing damaged tissue and organs with various biologic materials continues to be a major challenge in bioengineering. While past efforts have relied on highly invasive procedures, current work is now producing far less invasive methods. Joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss these new methods for tissue engineering is Professor Jennifer Elisiev. Professor Elisiev is an assistant professor of biomedical engineering at the Johns Hopkins University. She was also recently featured as a leader in the field of tissue engineering by the MIT Technology Review. Professor Alicia, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Uh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. 
I'm just wondering if you can explain to our audience, first of all, uh, what are the ideas behind tissue engineering and what have people been doing in the past to try and replace tissues and organs? Well, tissue engineering is a field that has gained a lot of uh, recognition over the past 10 or 15 years as a method to uh, regenerate or replace tissues and organs that have been lost due to uh, traumatic events, disease, or congenital abnormalities. And there are a couple strategies, but one of the most common strategies in tissue engineering is to place cells on some type of scaffold. And the scaffold is there to serve as a support network for cells and to help promote regeneration of new tissues, provide the right signals and the right environment for these cells to multiply and develop new tissue. So this is some kind of support structure then to grow these cells. Right. So some people might argue that tissue engineering is also just purely cell-based therapies, using cells to regenerate tissues alone or just using the biomaterial alone to help guide or direct regeneration. The most general strategy is to use both cells and scaffold. And uh, have people been very successful with this method of going about tissue engineering? Well, there have been a lot of good starts in a variety of organs showing a proof of concept that there's the potential to use technique for various tissues. Uh, we're really focused on trying to expand the basic science of this and learning more about potential stem cell applications in tissue engineering and also designing systems that are clinically relevant. So we like to work with a lot of surgeons, for example, orthopedic and plastic surgeons, to really see what current clinical practices and how we can improve it. One of our areas is minimally invasive implantation. So how can we apply tissue engineering in a minimally invasive manner? Okay, and, and by minimally invasive, uh, what, what types of procedures then would this involve and what kind of technologies are you involving that? Well, for example, in plastic surgery, we'd be interested in just simple injections, being able to inject the scaffold in cells, so you just have to use a syringe, and then being able to have a material that you can harden or make a certain shape with on command after injection. And we've been using light to help do that, to solidify our scaffold after implantation. For the case of orthopedic surgery, we're looking at ways that we can implant materials arthroscopically so you don't have to fully expose the knee. And what types of biological techniques then are are you using uh, to develop these injectable scaffolds? The main problem you're faced with is you want something that's liquid so you can inject it, but then you need something that will help solidify it or form uh, what we call hydrogels. Hydrogels are materials that um, don't dissolve in water, but they're capable of of absorbing a lot of water. And uh, one example of this might be jello that everybody would be familiar with. And so we're using light to form our gels. So we inject a liquid polymer solution and then expose it to light. And with the various chemistry that we have incorporated in the system, it forms a solid gel-like material. And you can get the light into the uh, injection site as well? Right. We can use light that penetrates tissue if you're oh. looking at a subcutaneous area, uh, from the case of plastic surgery, who might just plastic surgeons who might be injecting just underneath the skin. And arthroscopically, you can introduce a light for deeper applications, such as in the knee joint. And how far, I guess, do you think uh, this type of method will go compared to the artificial scaffolds that other people have been trying to build? Well, for different applications, you need to think of uh, different scaffold design issues. If you're making, uh, for example, a very organized tissue structure, you might want a multi-layered scaffold. Previous scaffolds, people use techniques of where you have to incubate your scaffold cells in vitro or in bioreactors, and you form your tissue before you implant it. And that has some advantages and disadvantages, just like every system. But what we hope to do is really bridge the gap between the in vitro basic science of 
uh, the polymer development and the cell biology with the clinical application. There's often a big gap between the two and uh, helping to bridge the two so you're really designing clinically relevant systems is one of our main goals. And we're also trying to really understand uh, the mechanisms of tissue development that brings in the issues of stem cells and how they're reacting in different environments. So we're really making a main goal of rationally designing tissue equivalents. So we have a rational component where we're trying to understand the basic science and then a real functional part where we deal with the surgeons and how we're actually going to get this to the clinic. And have you come across any uh, interesting insights into how these stem cells are functioning in, in various environments? Our systems that we develop give us an advantage that we can place cells in a controlled way. So we can have one cell type and uh, the next cell type in different multilayered constructs. And so we can really see how one cell will affect another cell. I see. And how far along do you think it will be before we, we see these types of innovations in practical use? Well, there's the first issue of designing the clinically relevant system. And in that respect, I think we're definitely within a few years of having a system that is really clinically useful. But uh, a real problem that often we don't think about in academia is when you're expanding that to actually get the patients on a larger scale and in an efficient manner. So getting the number of cells and the number of scaffolds that you need to really distribute this widespread and all of the safety considerations and required approvals is quite another uh, bear to tackle. I would imagine. So I guess besides these uh, logistical hurdles, do you think there are any other types of uh, scientific challenges ahead for uh, bringing tissue engineering into common use? Well, I think the the issue of uh, which cells are you going to use is an issue, and that also is related to the practical issue of getting it to a large number of people. I think we still need to think of finding the real optimal cell to use and learning how to direct it properly. And also really integrating what you're putting in there with your host tissue. So you can make a nice piece of cartilage, for example, for the knee, but if it doesn't integrate well into the surrounding tissue, it's not going to survive as long as you would like to. So I think that's another thing we need to think of when we go from the lab bench in vitro to people. It looks like we're running a little bit out of time. Uh, Just sort of as a final note, are you working on anything uh, different from this now, or are you you taking this in a different direction or a new direction? Well, we're looking at finding optimal materials that will help improve tissue development, and we're also looking at uh, particular ways that we can culture different cell types together to improve tissue development. Well, it sounds like very fascinating work, and uh, we wish you the best of luck. Professor Lisiev, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Thank you very much. You were just listening to Professor Jennifer Elisiev of Johns Hopkins University discussing the new frontiers in biomedical engineering. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Coming up next, Professor Carlos Fernandez Peos will discuss the recent Columbia incident. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grox. Well, joining us today is Professor Carlos Fernando Pelios from UC Berkeley's Department of Mechanical Engineering, and he's going to tell us about the speculation relating to the heat tiles that led to Space Shuttle Columbia's disaster. Professor Fernandez, thanks yes. for joining us. Yeah. So could you first tell us what these heat tiles do and how they protect the shuttle? Yeah, well, the, the heat tiles are there to prevent um, the, the skin or the, the metallic parts of the shuttle from uh, heat during the reentry process. Uh, it turns out that uh, uh, at the reentry there is a lot of friction. Right. Uh, the, the space shuttle comes at high speed and then as it enters the atmosphere the, and the air is, the density of the air starts increasing, then the friction increases, there is a lot of heat produced. So the, the tiles are there to, to protect the, the shuttle. Um, so if there is a, a problem with uh, one of the, or several of the tiles detaching, uh, mm -hmm. then the, 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 the metallic skin of the, of the shuttle could melt, and uh, it, it, we would, you would have a penetration on the on the, the cabin of the Saturn. Right, but isn't it, um, is it normal for some tiles to fall off during any space mission? Uh, n not really. Uh, there, there has been several, uh, it's always, uh, it's, it's, a, it's one of the weak uh, uh, aspects of the, uh, of the protection, but uh, generally they have survived quite well. Mm -hmm. uh, in this particular case, they think that the impact of either foam or, or, or ice may have uh, weakened uh, some of the, of the tiles, but it's a speculation at this point. So the initial damage incurred by the foam hitting the tiles could eventually lead to more files, tiles falling off during, uh, during landing, is that correct? It's, uh, the, uh, I don't know the details, but it's possible that the, these tiles are glued to the right. to the skin of the shuttle. So, and uh, it's uh, uh, the ceramic uh, ceramic has a, a, a protects uh, it can resist high temperature, but at the same time is uh, somewhat brittle. So, if you have the impact of a, of a hard object, it may crack. Uh, and that may uh, initiate a potential failure. In addition, during the reentry, there is a lot of vibration. So that if there are cracks in the ceramic and together with the vibration, it may cause uh, the, the detachment of some of them. So the structure of the ceramic does not withstand the turbulence. Well, uh, not the structure itself, but the, if there is, if the as I said, the ceramic is brittle. Okay. So if you have an impact in initial, and let's say that there are some cracks have developed, I see. And in addition, you have the vibration of the reentry that right. may all to work together to 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 have some of the tiles uh, uh, breaking. Okay. Well, uh, thanks a lot for your input, Professor Fernandez. Okay. You're welcome. And we were just talking to Professor Carlos Fernandez Peyo regarding the heat shield on the Space Shuttle Columbia. Berkeley Grox shares the grief of the rest of the nation over this tragic incident, and we dedicate the show in memory of the seven astronauts who died.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM, KALX. Well, have you ever wondered, how does guitar make sound? You can find out on this week's edition of Everyday Science. Ever wonder how guitar strings make different notes? The answer can be found in Everyday Science. All musical instruments make the air vibrate. It's how they make the air vibrate that determines their specific sound. With an acoustic guitar playing a chord or a single note adds energy to air molecules, which in turn create sound waves, or for us, sound. A guitar's strings are arranged from thickest to thinnest. On this one, the thinnest and thickest are both E's, but two octaves apart. Increasing a string's tension increases its vibration, and that determines the pitch of the string. On a guitar, every string is tied to a tuning key. A turn of the key can change this A into a B. Higher tensions create more air vibrations and thus a higher note. When we lower the tension, the air molecules are less excited, and that B becomes an A. Now, a fret is that narrow piece of metal on the fingerboard under the string. It adds some tension, too. When a guitarist presses a string into the fret with a finger, he shortens the string. When the guitar is played, the added tension excites air molecules and we hear a higher note. That's how guitarists take tension and turn it into beautiful music. Now you know the score. Thanks for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Well, she can strum my guitar anytime. <laughs> she can strum any part of my body, really. And we can make beautiful music together. Your magic guitar, right? The magic guitar. Oh, where are you, beautiful everyday science lady? What more needs to be said, really? <laughs> I'm, I'm tense just listening to her. Mm, and it, it's it, the tension. The tension won't go away until she makes me a very happy man. And now here's the answer to last week's question of the week. How are galaxies classified? Well, galaxies are classified by their shape, and those include spiral, dislike, and irregular. Unfortunately, rectangular does not count. It was seen on a previous astro test. Yeah, man, so that sounds really great then. They got all these types of things out there in the atmosphere in the world. But the question is now, so, so... Every time you're looking around, you're seeing all these people around, and some of them, they have the natron in them. Do you know what the natron is? It's not, it's not a football player, man. It's something else. Keeps the skin really good. If you know the answer, just think you know the answer. You can email us here at groks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. But hey, you just might catch a few more passes. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grocks. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that by emailing us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grocks, I'm Brian Gerke. And I'm Frank Ling. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And I'm Charles Lee. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music from your host, Mr. Pixel.